Hello and welcome to the Dive Deep, Climb High podcast. I'm Mel Luizu and together with my guests, we explore all different aspects of leadership in higher education. With inspiring stories, practical tips and a little bit of fishiness, this show will help you dive deep into the leader you are and climb high, unleashing your power and potential. Dive deep, climb high, can-do leadership in a world of can't. Before we start today, I wanted to let you know that my next six-month leadership programme will start in January 2023. It combines one-to-one coaching with live group sessions and is guaranteed to help you dive deep and climb high. To find out more, click on the link in the show notes or head over to my website www.fishclimbtrees.co.uk. Today, I'm so excited to be speaking to someone from across the pond. He has a doctorate in education from New York University and currently provides leadership and oversight for student housing and residential life at California State University, Northridge. He has nearly 15 years experience working with and researching the topic of emotional intelligence and related dynamics with both student and professional staff. And he recently published a book entitled Evolving Landscape of Residential Education, which is a collaboration with several global colleagues in the field. I cannot wait to dive into this conversation, which will undoubtedly be fascinating and enlightening. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Kevin Conn. Hi, Kevin. Hey, how are you? I'm really good. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Very good. I'm so excited to be diving into this week's conversation, emotional intelligence. Fantastic. So perhaps before we go there, you could give us a little bit of an insight into your career and how you've ended up where you've ended up. Uh, Originally from Michigan uh, in the United States. So spent my whole childhood there growing up and loving the Midwest part of the U.S. And then eventually, you know, you're in college, you're learning things, you're doing things and and you feel, wow, I, I didn't know student affairs could be a career path. You know, you think about higher education to get you somewhere else, but you never think about it to keep you where you're at. And I was an RA for a number of years. I worked in like hall government and I was kind of inspired from there to go into the career of of student affairs and housing. Uh, I soon after went to Illinois for grad school and then moved to New York uh, where I spent 15 years of my professional career in a variety of positions, uh, obtaining a second master's, my doctorate that you spoke about earlier and really working on kind of my craft. And it was an amazing 15 years in New York uh, spent time in Long Island, spent, you know, seven plus years in Manhattan, living and breathing the city life, uh, and really learning how to cultivate and kind of move past on my career. When I was in New York City most recently, I really learned a lot about just kind of my philosophy and, and what I've done with my career so far, where I want to go, and and really hard of how to be part of something bigger than myself, you know, a big organization, a big program, a big entity. And most recently, I moved cross-country in the U.S. from New York to uh, Los Angeles, California area, which is literally as far as you possibly can go. 
Uh, and now I live in Los Angeles County, working at Cal State Northridge, as you mentioned, uh, overseeing as our executive director for student housing and residential life. So big shift, big difference, but it's amazing. The people here are wonderful. It's a great opportunity to do great work. And there's so much opportunity to make change, uh, positive change, positive impact. And it's it's been wonderful. And I've been here uh, since August and I'm looking forward to seeing where I can take it in the time ahead. Uh, we'll probably get into this later, but one of my side passions, obviously you mentioned emotional intelligence uh, and I love doing research. I've been part of a multi-tier research project with several of my colleagues on the role of the RA and how it's evolved over time. And We've been to the UK twice working on that project, and we hope to take that even further in the months ahead. So, you know, career's been good, life's been good, and and we'll see where it takes us. Fantastic. I can't wait to dive in. And I know when we had the pre-call, we were talking about so many different subjects, private versus public education. Yes. Where can we go? But I think where I'd like to start if it's okay, and this is probably my own personal need rather than, than my listeners actually. But I would love for you in all the research that you have done, how would you describe emotional intelligence to a lay person? I love that. I think it's easy to complicate it and really think of it as a, as a hard topic to understand or discover. But really, emotional intelligence is really managing and perceiving emotions, managing your own emotions. So how you respond to triggers, events around you. Uh, and then perceiving what's happening around you, you know, people, places, things, and just being aware of those things. And as you kind of perfect that for yourself, you can work on kind of the last part of which to my mind is influencing, being able to use your emotions for good, to make positive change in the workplace, to make positive change with colleagues, friends, family, etc. Emotional intelligence is a skill that you hone over many, many years. But I think once you're aware of it and you're aware of where emotions can impact you, that starts the whole conversation. Because once you're aware of it, you know, oh, well, I did overreact or I didn't react enough or how can I use my my own emotional threshold to enhance this work or my relationship with somebody else? So to me, it's, it's just understanding and being aware of the emotions around you. And once you do that, you can go go really far. I love that. That's a really, as you said, it's a really simple way of describing it yeah and so for you in the work that you've done not just research but obviously working with colleagues in different universities how important would you say emotional intelligence is to leadership I think it's probably in the top five if not top one or two things that you think about because emotions come back to everything uh, and I always use a mantra, it's all about how you treat people. And to me, your emotional management, your reaction to your staff, your team, your friends, your colleagues can make their day better or can make it substantially worse. And it's being able to realize your impact. How are you impacting others with your emotional management? Do you get really upset or really frustrated and that shows in your staff or your colleagues? Are you very optimistic and positive and engaging with your workforce? Are you able to take in feedback and respond to feedback in an appropriate measured response. Like all those things come to emotional intelligence. If you can't do that, you're not going to have a good workplace. You're not going to have good relationships. You're not going to be able to connect with others. And you're not going to be able to make progress and good change moving forward. So to me, it's the utmost critical. Uh, I've always said that I've had people in my life who had great emotional intelligence and people have really poor emotional intelligence. And the ones that gravitate towards are the ones who try and try to make a difference and improve and you know, over the years, you'll think about things that happened and impacts, stuff like that. But you never forget 
that moment someone made you feel bad or made you feel less than or not valued and those kind of pieces. And sometimes it's just a word choice or a tone or perception of how things are going. So being aware of those things can make a huge impact, I think, career professionally, but also in your ability to work with others and connect and engage. Yeah. If I recall correctly, we both love that Maya Angelou quote. Yes. That you might not remember what people said. You might not remember what they've done, but you remember how they made you feel. You always do. Yeah, absolutely. So before we explore how you've taken that into your work in residential life, I have just one question for you. And in all the research that you've done, what is the thing that you have learned that caused the biggest shift in you in terms of emotional intelligence? Because I'm guessing that as you went through the research, you went, oh, that could apply to me. And what's been your biggest learning so far? Oh, gosh. So far, I mean, I will say, historically, when I first went and learned about the topic many years ago, I went on a whim. And my supervisor at the time said, hey, there's this conference on emotional intelligence. I can't go. Do you want to go in my place? And I said, no, okay, sure, whatever, we'll go. And I went and it changed my life. And it was one of those things where you, you, you hit like the light bulb moment where you understand we always knew in our life emotions have meaning, but learning the impact behind them, how they're generated and how our brain works shook me a little bit. You know, I think the way we're wired, we're wired to act first or respond first. And then we think about it. That's just the way our brain works. And I think as we move forward, being aware of that, knowing that I could take a pause here, I could just stop for a second and say, what's my best reaction to this? And I think learning that and being able to respond appropriately and taking that time to pause has made all the difference. I think about a number of events in my life, whether it be staff meetings or events or crisis situations that are happening. And if you don't take that time, your reaction may not be what it needs to be for that moment or that given time. And time is not hours. Time could be a five second, 10 second pause to just rethink or to, you know, adjust your facial expression if it's really intense for what it needs to be. And and being able to be there. I think that to me shook me a little bit to really figure out, wow, the impact of my emotions and what it has on others is extreme. Uh, and it can have really positive or negative impacts and really trying to be reflective of how I use that for good and and to make change in my organization and thinking about how to really take those pause moments. Because if you can pause and reflect or proactively know those certain things are going to trigger you, it can make a big difference too when they do come up. So your reaction is more appropriate for what's happening. Take a pause. In my case, I've learned to take a breath, take a very, very deep, long, slow breath. (laughs) I mean, the long ones and the slow ones are important. I think it really is. But also, I I know emotional intelligence can, you know, really impact how you do your work. If you're aware of those things, you know, when someone says something that's really off the wall, you can fight back at them, scream at them, yell at them, or you can take your emotional management, really think about it for a second, and then process what will get you to where you want to go. What is the right emotion to generate to solve this problem, to work with this person, to, you know, partner with this parent, this stakeholder, this colleague. But the biggest takeaway, too, I think that I haven't mentioned yet is that emotional intelligence, emotional management does not mean a void of emotions. It doesn't mean we're not happy anymore. We're not sad anymore. You can have every emotion under the sun, but being appropriate with how you display them, how you connect and how you work with our staff. I think we have a very, very diversified workforce and really being aware of different cultures, backgrounds, belief systems, 
you know, all that comes into play with emotional intelligence too, and how we manage those emotions and others work with others who are different than us uh, and really set stuff up for success, whether it be, you know, at conferences or places where people are gathering or in the workplace or at home. It just takes a little bit of time, energy to get yourself up ready to, to do that good work. Yeah. So you have a new team member coming in as an RA, a residential assistant. How do you introduce this topic? How do you bring it to life for them? Yeah, to me, I think it's what I talked about a little bit earlier is really articulating what it means and making it simple. You know, everyone has emotions. Everyone uses emotions on a daily basis. So emotional intelligence could simply think to somebody, well, I have to be smarter with how I speak or something like that. It's not that. And just helping folks be aware. And to me, when they first come on, typically I've done in the past trainings and onboarding of, you know, what is emotional intelligence? What does it mean for you and your role? What are some examples of how this can impact your work? The work of others. Uh, I love to do self-assessments with folks to kind of process through emotional management, where they kind of fall on a spectrum to see what works and what doesn't, and then also ways to improve. I always tell folks any time training I do on emotional intelligence that, you know, it's not about comparing yourself to person A to person B to person C. Everyone's different, but everyone has different thresholds of where they're at now and how to improve that going forward can make a world of difference focused on you. Not the person next to you, not your vice president, not your director, not whatever, just you. And how do you make that work and change going forward? And to me, I make it real and I make it a reality, folks, when we go through the trainings and I make it very personalized so folks can share examples and thoughts and feelings. And, you know, I think that's also come into how we process situations as stuff comes up throughout the year, challenging things, hard situations, difficult moments. You know, it's following up again and saying, okay, with this framework, how do we use this? How do we process this? How do we help folks folks who are struggling or dealing with, with challenging situations to process through their emotions? All that comes into play. Uh, but I think it's being vulnerable, being open, and being willing to have the dialogue and, and talk through it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm guessing that you, you've got the research that shows when you start to apply this, then it can really help people be more effective in their residential life roles. It does. And there's substantial research that shows people are more satisfied at work. They enjoy things better when their supervisors and staff are connected to them, treat them in a positive manner, work with them in a certain tone and, and, you know, communication methods, stuff like that. So there's evidence to say that having good emotional intelligence, both as a supervisor and supervisee, can, you know, improve productivity and make the experience better for folks and, and have them more engaged and more vested. As I mentioned earlier, if you have a supervisor or a director or a boss who constantly puts you down and constantly uses language that's not appropriate or says things that really don't inspire you to do good work, you're not going to do it. You're going to do the minimum, you're going to get through the day, and you're going to go on to the next day. But I think if you have someone who really treats you with care and respect, provides guidance, some positive energy in the, in the office, and, and you know some foresight of what's coming next, that can improve connection, it can improve morale, it can improve folks react to each other, and helps to build that team environment. Absolutely. So obviously there were so many different aspects that we could talk about. In your book, The Evolving Landscape of Residential Education, what are the findings? How how is that world evolving from the research that you've carried out? It's dramatically evolving. And I think a large part of the study was uh, some colleagues of mine did an international tour and they toured through the U.S. and different places to see how it higher education structured, residential life, housing, and those kind of pieces. And to me, what we saw, there is vast differences that we see in how things are engaged, set up, and structured from, say, 
areas in China to the UK to, you know, Australia to the US, pick your place. Everything's a little bit different. Uh, and that's okay because every population is a little bit different. But I think from this, we're able to see and glean that there are strategies that can apply and work in a lot of environments, regardless of geographic location. Uh, and those can be how we properly onboard and train our staff, how we engage with resident assistants and their work to make it more meaningful, you know, how we uh, discuss curriculum development and engaging to create a more meaningful connection and, and place for students to involve themselves when they live on campus, to even rethinking how we just frame our experience from lounges to spaces to communal gatherings. All of it can have a significant impact on the student experience and being there to work with colleagues outside of yourself in your area can have a big impact. I think one of the biggest things I took away from this is that it takes more than just what you know to make it happen. And I think that means to me is, you know, digging deeper to looking at resources from across the globe. How do you do it, you know, in this part of the world, in this part of the world, in that part of the world and seeing, wow, I never thought about it that way or I never thought about a way to do this in a way that can have this level of impact, or I complicate this more than it needs to be complicated. This is actually very simple. And other university institutions have found simple ways to do this, which I'm spinning my wheels on. So it's it's that kind of work. And I think it helps to kind of frame it a little better for folks to really think that we're all not that different and just trying to apply what we know and the skills that we have to different circumstances, different experiences. And I think if you do that and be open to that, uh, it can work really well. Yeah. And and I really love that idea that actually wherever you go, you can learn something from another institution or another country around how they do it. Because here in, in the UK, as I'm sure you're aware, we look to the US yes. for, you know, what are they doing? How can we do it? How can we do it as well as them? What can we take from them? But I know you've, you've visited the UK, your research has involved the UK. What have you taken from the UK that you think that you can apply back in the US? There's a lot. I think the one thing that comes to mind is the term pastoral care. Pastoral care is not a term used in the US. You know, we, we'll call it holistic wellness and support. We'll call it different things. But, you know, we focus on student engagement and wellness. But the strong focus on pastoral care and care for the student and the whole person and all those things seem to be more visible when I was in the UK, um, seemed to be a term that Aries would use too, just as, as they're describing it, Aries or wardens or whatever that was described as that position. That was very different for me. Um, again, wellness is, is thought about throughout the globe, but I think it's a very high focus from all levels of staffing. I thought it was also unique that kind of the, the student staff, if you will, in the UK all have a variety of experiences. Some are, you know, directly responding to crisis. Some are only for programming. Some are there to support, um, you know, flat walks and apartment meetings and that kind of stuff. And some are there just to help support security efforts. And I think it's amazing to see the vast differences that exist there. I think the U.S. is similar in that way. We have a lot of folks trying a lot of different things to make the IRA role the best it can be. But I think one of the biggest takeaways was how do we reflect on the role going forward? I think COVID through a wrench in a lot of things and it really made us rethink and re-examine how we do our practice. And I think with coming to the UK a couple of times and here in the US, really rethinking how we best utilize our staff, the RAs, uh, et cetera, to the best of their ability, you know, and also making sure that we have enough balance and support of our system so that folks feel like they have what they need to do their job. And whether that be training, 
whether that be follow-up, whether it be one-on-ones with their supervisors for that constant connection support, you know, I think there's ways to make that, that connection. And I think finally, one of the biggest things that took out for me from, you know, going to the UK and working with folks there and then working with folks back in the US, and I'm also um, a Kugelai Global Ambassador. So I've been part of that program and doing a lot with people from across the globe is that everybody wants to learn. Everybody wants to improve. Everyone wants to change their practice for the better. I know you mentioned, you know, the UK folks look to the US and that's great, but I think there's things we can do to look on the other way as well and, and learn from best practices in the UK, how things are, are spread out and done and combine efforts. I think there's a lot of opportunity now, 2022 and beyond to really rethink how we do our work and reflect on practices that make the most sense for the most amount of people and can really improve what we offer. Love that. And I know that there will be residential teams listening to this, nodding away. Going, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I fully support that. Absolutely. So again, going back to your, your research, what do you see as the biggest challenge for people working in residential life? I think the biggest thing now globally is mental health and wellness. Mental health and wellness is is and always has been an issue. But again, the pandemic, I think, heightened so many of the experience of folks who didn't have that typical in-person experience prior to college, or if they did, it was virtual hybrid. And some of those skill building times were not there. And now we're dealing with folks who have a little bit less, we'll say coping mechanisms to handle some of these difficult things, whether it be roommate conflicts, whether they be issues with parents, whether they be academic struggles. And to me, I think as we go forward, we really have to think how we, A, prepare for wellness incidents, right? So prepare, train, develop our student and professional staff. But also the second part of it is how do we care for them? I think that's an issue that we're missing in a lot of places that people go through a lot of emotional distress, emotional management, taking on that baggage during a crisis. Students are upset. You're the RA, you're the pro staff member, you're taking care of them over and over and over and over again. But how are we taking care of you? And I think to me, that's one of the biggest things we can do as a staff and a direction going forward to take care. And that could be simple as time to listen, time to hear folks out of how things went, how to be present and engaged during crisis, how to follow up, connect with staff who have had difficult times or experiences, uh, all of that. And one thing I think that helps with that is at my former institution, uh, when I worked at NYU, uh, I created what we'll call a care team. And the care team focused on caring for and recognizing employees. And it really focused year on to year on how can we engage our staff in meaningful ways to help them feel valued and cared for. And whether it be simple mixers, um, recognition ceremonies, outings, you know, team builders, just time intentionally put to care for the staff. It doesn't cost a lot of money, doesn't have to, and just being there. And that could be for the pro staff or the RAs could be done as well. And I think the other takeaway I take from the research is how we think about the role of the RA going forward. A lot of folks have mentioned it's been the same for a number of decades, and I agree with that. And it's how do we evolve it with this evolving population as student needs increase, as, as staffing needs increase, as emotional and mental health wellness issues increase. How do we evolve this role to make the most out of the experience? It can't be the same. It always has been. So taking the role to a new level, whether that be you know, segmenting some of the duties from the RA and the pro staff into different avenues, whether that be more, you know, more sponsorship or, or, you know, collaboration between offices to help support students. Or whether it be, like I mentioned earlier, training. I think training and development, a lot of students we met with throughout the UK talked so much about how are we trained, how are we developed, how do we engage, and 
the other part of the study was a U.S. tour as well. And a lot of those comments from the U.S. and the U.K. came out about training, 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 how we developed, how we trained. And I think as a team, both U.S. and U.K., we do a good job training. But sometimes you go through training in August or whatever month it may be. And then come September, October, the incident happens and you forget what you learned or your, your mind's kind of you know jumbled because you went through two weeks of training and it's, whoo, it's gone. And really making time to provide more practical experience for people after training is over. Hands-on workshops, seminars, uh, areas to follow up to help folks feel like they have the resource need to handle things, but also they feel like they are confident in their ability to do their work. I would totally agree with that with the work that I've done is that and the universities I've worked with before I get involved, often it's the what to do because there's so much that RAs need to work and understand the policies of the university. But actually, it's not the how, it's not the emotional intelligence piece. And actually, I I would totally agree that if there are people listening, it's not just how can we make that first two weeks really, really impactful, but it's, it's the ongoing training and the support that people need us as they come up against incidents and crises and issues that they've not dealt with. And, Correct. and as you say, that training not only gives them help to manage themselves, but also an opportunity to talk about what is going on for them and their personal development. Because I think that so often, and I don't know whether it's your experience, that the students that apply for these jobs are already quite empathetic and they're yes. caring and they want to make the world a better place for others. But we don't teach it. Well, certainly we don't here in the UK teach how to manage that through a school. So you may have a natural ability to do that. But if you haven't, you haven't been open to, okay, how do I look after myself so that I can look after everybody else? Yeah, that's it. I think there's so much ability for those check-ins because we, we assume sometimes that training will cover it for professional staff too. And I've been on crisis response and high-level duty for a number of years and also get calls and I'll be like, what? I haven't heard this. I'm like, how have I not heard this situation? But it always happens. You learn and you do and you grow and stuff evolves. So no matter how long you've been in the field, folks way longer than me or shorter, stuff will always evolve and change. Dynamics will change. Circumstances will change. And how do you make yourself feel as comfortable and confident to respond as possible? And sometimes it's just doing scenario training or just asking the question, how do you all feel about X, Y, Z? Do you feel you have it? Awesome. If you don't, what questions do you have to get us from feeling good to feeling great and handling this, you know, together. I love that. So much about feelings. We could chat all day. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so bringing you into my world for a moment, when have you had to dive deep and what impact did that have on you? I thought about this for a while, trying to figure out, you know, there's so many things I could share about diving deep. But the one thing I think that really hits me is our research. You know, when I first started my doctoral program, I was invested and wanted to learn more through the classes and the engagement with my colleagues, stuff like that. But it wasn't until a few years after that I started doing the research project and really digging into dissertation and learning, you know, how to conduct research. And you can't dive in deeper than that, where you're literally drowning in processes and understanding how to properly do research, understand it, and dialogue and connect with colleagues and, and students and processes and everything else. And to me, in the beginning, it was like I was treading water and trying to figure out how to do this because it was so challenging. But as it progressed, I had amazing colleagues, amazing advisors, uh, and amazing partners across the UK where I was able to go and connect and 
you know, after leaving the U.S. part of the study, we took a year off for COVID, obviously, because COVID happened. Then we came back and did the U.K. portion and really investing myself in that research, the, the stories that are told by the folks we interviewed and met with in the focus groups, the anecdotal stories from the document analysis we did on the RA position descriptions that are there and describe how we and what we ask of, of RAs and the roles across the globe. And to me, the more I got into it, the more I realized I can do this too. It, it's not horribly challenging. It's just you really have to put your mindset into this new framework, you know, making data talk, you know, telling your story through assessment, through research. And I've always loved assessment and those kind of practices, but I've never done it on a grand scale. And being able to dig into this and ask the questions and probe and really tell the story reflectively back was my diving deep. It was really, really thinking about how to reframe what I do from an active practitioner to a researcher. And it's been amazing. And now it's my favorite thing I do. So I, I do my work and I love my work. But then on the side, I get to do the research and connect with colleagues like yourself and to travel and kind of hopefully make change as we go forward into what we think the roles in our profession can can be or evolve to, you know, 2022 to 2030 to 2040 and beyond, just, just being able to make that difference. Fantastic. So I have a follow-up question that I think will be really useful for listeners, because I think for people working in residential life, sometimes you'll work in an institution that gets it. They they understand it. They don't need the data to support it in order to give the, the investment to, to grow and develop the service. Sure. But I think that a lot of UK colleagues are coming up against that fact that they understand it. They know the impact that they are having. Yes. But actually getting that hard data to be able to go and say to somebody who is very logical, who doesn't deal with emotions, yes. wants the facts and figures... How would you say, what is the best way to do that in, in the journey that you've been on with research? Yep, yep. How, to, how can you best do that? I will say it's two things. Like one, it's partnership. And it's really understanding who your network is. I think coming from our U.S. study to the U.K. study, some of my best friends in the world have come out of, of this work. And I've connected with colleagues across the U.K. from a variety of institutions and really learning how they do their work. And to me, if you can articulate and tell your story to someone else, that makes a huge difference. And they can tell it to me and I can reiterate it back to them. Here's what I'm hearing, here's what I'm seeing. Here's some ways we can improve our practice collectively. That's part of the data telling because it doesn't all need to be charts and numbers. There should be some anecdotal evidence that talks about what you're trying to achieve here. The other part of it is measurement assessment. You know, As you're going through your programs, how are we tracking things beyond numbers, beyond just you know, 15 people came to a program, 10 students lived here. Those metrics are great, but how are we doing to assess student learning and engagement to prove that story? And if we're able to set learning outcomes and measure those amongst our students and our population, you know, are they able to articulate who the RA is? Are they able to get help during crisis response situations? Have they learned something new on a topic we want them to learn on? Have they engaged with somebody new or someone different than themselves over the course of their six month or year period in the institution? Whatever those questions may be, we can set benchmarks, measure against them, guide that through programming engagement, through curricular development, and then assess and say, yeah, we're able to do that. And here's why we need 20,000 more pounds or 40,000 more pounds or whatever it may be to do this work because it's valued by the student. You can see the metrics moving. You see shifts. You can see anecdotal quotes from folks just talking about how they had an impact. 
So if we can do that, I think it can make a world of difference in how we tell that story. Some folks need more convincing than others, and some will need more data. Um, but I think if you're passionate about what you do and you can sell that through that data and through your storytelling, I think that will help a great deal. And then talking to colleagues, you know, sharing it. Does this make sense? What I'm telling you, does this make sense? Am I missing anything? Does it sound like a proposal that makes sense, doesn't make sense, has holes in it? And processing through that with them. And sometimes I'll write stuff for days on articles and writing and stuff like that. And then I'll read through it again or someone read through it and they'll be like, you missed all of this. And I'm like, how did I miss that? But you look at it over and over again and you get kind of numb to it, to the data, to the stories, to everything else. And, and the more perspectives you have to bring in to kind of review that and look at that context, they can make a huge impact. Yeah, I love that. And I love that about being able to tell your story to somebody else, asking them to play it back to you and then ask you questions about that is a great way to hone yes. then your pitch that you go in for, for more money. I suspect your email is going to be inundated with, dear Kevin, please, can you help me? <laughs> <laughs> Always happy to help anybody. I love I love helping colleagues, working with folks, but it's it's one of those things learn the most from other people. Okay. You know, and if I didn't have the amazing people in the UK that I worked with on this study, you know, the colleagues, the conferences, the support. I mean, when we went there, everyone pulled up the red carpet for us. They set us up with students. They were there. They were engaging with us and they cared for us as researchers in the field doing work uh, to improve everyone's practice. And I think if you take that same mentality back to anything you do going forward, as long as you're caring for those folks you're working with, supporting them, engaging with them, it can make all the world a difference, I think, in how you can move things forward to tell that story, as you mentioned, or really just to make a difference. Fantastic. Thank you. Of course. When have you felt like a fish that climbed a tree? Uh, daily. Uh, but let's say uh, right now, I would say my move to California uh, was big. So, you know, Michigan's in the Midwest, California, New York, New York's on the East Coast, you know, and then moving from the very east side of the state all the way uh, out of a city landscape to kind of a more suburban area was a big change for me. And a change not only because the institution is different, but the way in which I live my life is different. I was used to, you know, walking out and being amongst a city and, and running around and hopping on a subway and everything else. And now I'm in suburbia and, you know, driving my car and doing those kind of things, the traditional things most people do. But it's not so much the lifestyle change, it's the work change too. You know, going to an institution that really is focused so much on caring for the student, uh, so much on first gen. And as an Hispanic serving institution, there's so much work to be done just to care for, engage, and help folks feel connected to the institution to help them maintain and, and retain. And I think from both here and NYU, they're vastly different institutions. Both have great missions, great institutions, great support systems, but they're different. And I think shifting from a private mindset to a public mindset, how we're serving the institution here, how we're serving the students, how we're engaging. Uh, and then I think coming into thinking about how we're cultivating our team and supporting that. You know, I was part of a team and now I'm leading a team that's even bigger than I was on before and trying to figure out how to instill that positive energy into them and that workforce and all that. To me, that's climbing that tree and I'm making it, you know, rung by rung and it's happening uh, and it's going well. And I think it's one of those things where it takes time and being OK to take time to learn and to grow and to assess culture and history. But I think one of my greatest benefits is I've been in a lot of places over my career and to experience things done in different ways. And that I've seen to be very helpful um, in making it up that tree by having resources, backgrounds, experiences that have helped me 
kind of triage to do my best work. And, and my staff here are amazing and it's a great change and shift. And I'm happy to see kind of uh, what goes next. Oh, fantastic. I'll be back in a year's time or so to say how far up that tree have you have you got? I would love that. Who else have you brought along with you? I mean, such a fascinating conversation. And we've just covered so many areas. And I know that people will have questions and comments. So how is it best for people to get in touch with you? I think my social media handle is my Twitter, at uh, Dr. Kevin Kahn. Easy. They can tweet, uh, message me in there. Kevin.con at csun.edu. You can email me. Um, I'm very accessible. I'm happy to get up on a phone call, a Zoom, touch base. Always there to connect with somebody who wants to learn more about emotional intelligence. I could help with the training or development for them or just to connect and share stories. I love meeting new people uh, and I love engaging with that. So whatever I can do to support anybody, let me know and we'll make it happen. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your insight, your research, your time. I really, really do appreciate it, especially when you're going through such big change yourself. What final words of wisdom would you like to leave people with today? Final words. Again, I'll go back to my mantra. It's all about how you treat people. And I think if you really, really take that into consideration, think about your actions, think about your words and your words that have meaning you can make a huge impact in someone's life. And I think just being able to be aware of what you do, how you do it, and being mindful of your impact to your team and your staff, you can make such positive change and such good connections with people. So being aware, learning who you are, and learning the impact you have on others can really have a significant difference in how we engage with people and uh, and really make positive change happen. So be aware, be aware, be aware, and help make others feel valued for their work as much as you feel valued for yours. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Dive Deep, Climb High podcast with me, Mel Luizu. To help build our community of leadership listeners, please leave me an Apple podcast five-star review. Remember, our fishy adventure doesn't have to end here. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram and Twitter. Links are in the show notes. Dive deep, climb high, can-do leadership in a world of can't.